Hey there, welcome to night school. It's an Easter Sunday version. Not that there's anything Easter, Easterly to talk about today. Uh, what I was actually thinking about is in response to something I saw, I saw a, an older woman express this online. Something about how people need to not respond to other people's stories with their own story. And this actually plays into this idea of one-upping that I first heard about a decade ago. And then it seems to have become, people seem to have become increasingly aware and opposed to the idea of one-upping when it comes to conversation, talking to another person. And, you know, of course, there's a time and a place where you just listen to somebody. There's a time and a place where somebody's telling you about something in their life and you just listen and you don't respond with something of your own. But when you do that, that's called relating. I mean, it's how all relationships are formed, hence relationship, hence the word relationship. You know, we relate. That's how we form relationships. And we relate by comparison. By comparing our situation to theirs. And yeah, of course there's a time where somebody doesn't want to hear how something similar happened to you. Or something similar but maybe more grandiose. The thing that happened to you was even bigger and better. And and that's what people are concerned about when they say, oh, you're one up. He's a one upper. And that's a new term. That's, you know, I've heard it. The first, I have to say though, this isn't just an internet thing because... First of all, I'm only peripherally aware of a lot of internet slang. You know, I'm only, I don't pay that much attention to that kind of thing. Although we live in a world where that stuff is all over the real world. So there's really a very blurry line between internet slang and the slang everybody uses. I mean, you'll, you'll meet housewives and dads who use internet slang in, in daily conversation. And they're not even that involved. I mean, if you watch TV, you'll see that. You know, they use internet slang on TV, and, and people catch up very quickly now. Well, it used to take, like, somebody's parents years to catch on to some slang word, and by the time they're aware of it, you know, of course, nobody else is using it. But now, you know, you know, the, the snake swallows more of its own tail, and things speed up, trends speed up, things fracture. And so, you know, you'll you'll see people using, you know... The words of of youth, the words of young people at a quicker rate, but young people also let go of things at a quicker rate. Uh, But anyway, um, one-upping is something that I've mainly seen that referred to online, but the first time I ever heard it was in in person. I was with a guy who I was friends with. He was a coworker who I was friends with, and we were at a party, and he, he told some sort of funny story, and I responded with, Something just like, well, yeah, but have you ever done this? And I remember he just stopped dead in his tracks and he just said, don't one-up me. And I think he was drunk enough to be, uh, he was drunk enough to just let his like insecurity just like cut to the bone. Like, like, I mean, it was like, I understand, like I might've been obnoxious. Like I'm not even saying like anything. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not even somebody who has good stories. You know, if you listen to this show, you know that most of my stories are like one time a kid said something in third grade that I never forgot. And here's my interpretation of it 28 years later. 
You know, like a lot of my stories are not that interesting. Like, I mean, I know that about myself. While I've had plenty of adventures, while I've done plenty of things, the things I end up wanting to talk about are not interesting in, in the traditional way that like, oh, let's all like a bunch of sailors crowded around the bar telling their stories, telling their war stories of when they were out to sea and they almost lost a leg and a guy fell overboard. You know, I don't have stories like that in most cases. I don't think many people even do anymore. And that plays into what I'm talking about is this increasing insecurity over being one up. But anyway, just to, to finish that thought, the first time I ever heard it was just this guy saying to me in person, like, don't one up me. Or like it was something to that effect. And I was just, I remember being bummed out about it because it's, first of all, like this guy was my friend and, and normally this guy and I would have those sorts of exchanges and I, you know, I, I was making no attempt to one up him. First of all, it's like there was nothing. I was just kind of egging him on. In fact, I, I felt like we were playing a game. You know, it's like throwing up the volleyball. Like here, you, you now hit this one. And a lot of my exchanges with this guy were like that. Like he and I would go out drinking, and a lot of our conversations were like, "Yeah, but this," and then he would throw it back at me. And that's how a lot of my friendships are. You know, a lot of my friendships over the years have been an exchange like that. And it's not always competitive. It's just kind of like you're egging each other on. You're adding more fuel to the fire is how I see it, not trying to beat them. And so him saying that, it's the only time anybody's ever said that to me. Maybe other people have felt it. Maybe other people have felt that I'm, uh, you know, trying to one-up them or something. I don't know. I, I never, that's never my intention. I've never felt that way. But what's interesting is is this idea of one-upping kind of coincides with other cultural, social forces that have gone on where, you know, it used to be, I think that sort of, that form of conversation used to be much more normal and not just the relating aspect, you know, because not just like, oh, my family member died and somebody else says, oh yeah, well, my family member died and this is what I went through, you know, because that's, that's an attempt to... That's an attempt at compassion. It's saying, like, I understand your situation. And while you shouldn't hijack somebody else's tragedy with some story of your own, you know, part of having a relationship to somebody is knowing how to navigate that. It's knowing how to balance your own story without, like, trying to overpower them or distract from what they're trying to tell you. And it's never going to be perfect because we are imperfect, you know, we are imperfect. We, you know, we were born with original sin, and the original sin is basically imperfection as far as I'm concerned. So it's like our conversations, like us, are never going to be perfect. But we try. You know, we, we try to relate to people. We try to relate to people without hijacking their the point they're trying to make or overpower them or one-up them. But I feel like that used to be a much more normal form of conversation. Like, if you've ever been to an old people bar, a lot of what they do is one-up each other. And they all enjoy it. They all laugh. They all throw things at each other, you know, verbally. And I'm not just talking about, like, insulting each other, like, who can insult each other the most. I'm talking about they just, just telling stories. And uh, it, just, it seems to be something that was a natural part of conversation with older generations, and some people are more introverted. Some people don't have stories. But it just seems like when it comes to conversation, that was much more acceptable to be like, well, here's what I have to say. Here's my story. And maybe it was that people lived more adventurous lives. You know, maybe it is that people were doing more. I mean, this could be a byproduct of people 
living in a, a world that has become dominated by digital communication. And as much as I've been defensive of some aspects of social media or as much as I do defend some aspects of that, because I think it is what you make of it. I think if you have the right discipline and you have the right perspective, that social media is no worse than anything else you come in contact with. The problem is, like anything, is that people are undisciplined. I mean, you can say the same thing about food. Did you know food is awful? Did you know food is destroying our lives? Because people eat too much of it, or they eat some of it that's not good. It causes them, the amount of food they eat changes the way they think and the way they feel, and that changes the way they interact with people. You know, it's like you can say the same thing you, people say about social media or as they say about everything else. And of course, people should be critical. People should see social media or through a critical eye. But I don't necessarily see it as inherently any more malignant than anything else we as humans come into contact with. I mean, it can make us feel worse, it can make us feel angry, it can make us, it can ruin our relationships, but that's true for any number of things that we do. Um, it just, maybe it, it makes it easier to do that. Maybe maybe it makes it, maybe it, it, it kind of expedites that process where you can do that much easier and quicker. Like you can be upset much quicker because you can log on to something and see some opinion or whatever it is, or feel insecure. Uh, but that insecurity plays into what I'm talking about with one-upping, where I think this increasing concern and like, because I mean, there've always been braggarts. Like braggarts have always existed. People who do try to beat you at every single story do exist. I worked with a lady who nobody liked, and I, I kept her at arm's length. I liked everybody I worked with at this place, but this lady, she was kind of a pariah, and it was sad because it's just like she just did not get it. It's like she was missing some component. But people would, would say something, and, and these are actual exchanges that I witnessed, and someone would say something like, oh, yeah, I got a new car this weekend. I got a really good deal. And she, she would say, like, oh, what would you pay for it? And they would say, she goes, oh, I got mine for, I got a better deal. Somebody had a baby, and they were talking about how much their baby weighed, and she was like, yeah, well, my baby was, you know, 10 and a half pounds. That's how much I weighed. And I said, well, I was 10 and a half pounds. So I'm your, I'm like your baby. I, try, I tried to relate to her. No, I don't think I did. I never tried to talk to her. Because she would just, you know, she would just uh, try to beat everybody's story with, with nonsense. Like stuff that was uninteresting. Because I think that's a distinction. Is, is the person trying to say something interesting in the, you know, or, or just, are they saying something that is relevant to the context of the conversation? Or are they just like dropping something on your feet? Are they just stepping on you? You know, I think that's part of it. But those people have always existed. There have always been braggarts. There have always been people who say pointless things to kind of try to beat you at your own game. Those people have always existed. Uh, but I, I, I have seen this increasing insecurity over it. Because with, with those people always having existed you know what to do with them. Like if you're an adult human being, you know what to do when somebody is always trying to beat you at this game that doesn't even exist. Like if somebody's always saying, well, I got a better deal. Oh, I drink. I mean, I brought this up with drinking where, you know, when you drink, there's always somebody who will tell you, oh, you drank three fifths in a weekend. Have you ever drank five? 
And then when you quit drinking, there's always somebody who's like, oh, you think you had a drinking problem? Well, I had a drinking problem. You know, there's always somebody, that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's the people who try to tell you things like that. But you know what to do with them if you're an adult with a fully formed brain, which is that you just say nothing. You just let it go. You don't let it, like, it, it doesn't make you insecure. Like, when someone is pointlessly competitive in that way, unless there's something interesting about what they're saying, you just let it fall. And it turns out it doesn't even land on your feet. It turns out they, they're, they're trying to step on your, your toes, but it turns out they're missing. It turns out they're not even stepping on your toes. They're not even stepping on your toes. You know, they're not. It's, it's in your mind if, they, if you feel like they are, or you're, just, you're as insecure as they are if you feel threatened by what they're saying. And sometimes it's just a misfire. Like sometimes one person will say that to you, or, or someone, someone you know will say something to you, but you know that's not typically how they talk. You know, you, know, you know they typically aren't trying to step on your toes, so you can give them the benefit of the doubt. They tried to relate to me, or they tried to like throw up the volleyball for me to hit it, but it was a poor throw, and I couldn't hit it, and I, maybe I didn't want to. Maybe I wasn't in the mood for volleyball. I'm not in the mood for volleyball. You know, it could be something like that. But going back to the social media thing, I, I do think that these things... I don't necessarily think that there, I mean, there's a correlation. I wouldn't say that either of these have caused each other, but I think we can see where social and cultural forces kind of coincide with, with these, with this increasing concern that I've seen over like one-upping or like just listening to somebody's story without responding with your own story. Just listen. You hear that a lot these days. Just listen. And uh, I think that does kind of coincide with what we see on social media or where as much as I am kind of defensive of social media, or at least I wouldn't say I'm defensive of it as much as I am just, I try to communicate that it's not much different than any number of other things that we use and come in contact with. I mean, you think social media is bad. Look, look, look what goes on in cars. Driving your car is far more likely in my experience to ruin my day. And it also puts your life at risk. If somebody does something wrong. So, I mean, it's like everything offers, but, but yet it's, I wouldn't say cars are ho completely horrible. You know, there's something wonderful about driving in your car, listening to music on a spring day, like right now, like being able to roll the windows down for the first time in months is a wonderful feeling, but you also run the risk of somebody T-boning you. You also run the risk of somebody just cutting you off, not using their turn signal. You know, all these number of things that could ruin your moment, if not your day. And people are fools on the road. Fools on the road. And so social media doesn't seem that bad when you compare it to driving. But yet people are like, social media is ruining, ruining everything. And like I always say on here, it's like we had two world wars less than a century ago. Or I guess, I guess the First World War was a little over a century ago, but who's counting? Um, you know, we had, we had two world wars basically in the last century, and social media didn't exist then. But yet people are like, it's social media that's tearing us apart. You know, I'm writing a book. Oh, I'm a, I'm a psychology professor writing a book about how social media is tearing us apart. It's like we had two world wars with countless wars. I mean, don't you see the bigger picture here? We can turn anything into a problem. We're human beings. We can turn anything into a problem. We can turn anything into a problem. We can, though. 
we do. But to get to my point, just with social media, I think the thing that I see as a problem that relates to this like insecurity over storytelling and the exchange of stories is that everybody has this platform now where they can just say their thing and it's on their page. And even though it's distributed on this feed that everybody they know looks at, it's still theirs. It's their little box. It's their little box of text or, or their photo. And in that box and everything underneath that box, the replies, it's theirs. And they can control what people say in response. You know, they can delete a comment. They can ignore a comment. They can choose to acknowledge it with the like button. And what I see is, is the, the biggest problem that I've had with, with the development of social media, Meteor, excuse me, it's called Meteor, is the like function. Because if you used earlier forms of what's now called social media, if you used earlier versions of that, and there were a number of sites like that, or forums were a version of it, there were online journals, even earlier, even earlier versions of the sites that are around today, like Facebook, they didn't have a like button. They, if you wanted to acknowledge something, you had to say something, which is how acknowledgement typically works. You know, in, in the flesh, acknowledgement typically works in the form of you saying something out loud to let somebody know. Or, of course, there are, are nonverbal things you can do to communicate that you are listening to somebody. Like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, or nodding your head, or just eye contact. And you, But even then, those things don't actually mean you're listening or paying attention. It seems like when I'm saying, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, I'm probably least less likely to be listening and I'm saying that in order to like pretend I'm listening. If I'm actually listening, I'm probably silent. And I'm not much of an eye contact guy, which disturbs people. But uh, I listen better without eye contact, but you know, but in the flesh there are there are different ways that you can communicate acknowledgement. So, you know, what these like buttons, these favorite buttons, these heart icons are, is there a way to acknowledge somebody? And it didn't used to work that way. It used to be that if you wanted to say something, if you, if you wanted to acknowledge somebody, you had to say something. And there is value to that. And I think even today, people value a comment much more than they do a like but yet they're hungry for likes. They're hungry for acknowledgement. At least, I mean, I'll say for me, like I definitely value a comment more. And I don't comment enough. You know, I don't comment on other people's things enough. Uh, but uh, the like button is this way to be like, I saw this and I'm basically, I'm either enthusiastic about you because, you know, you, I, I haven't started resenting you for some bogus reason yet. <laughs> you haven't weirded me out yet. Or it's just a way of being like, I'm going to acknowledge you. Because this is a free way to apparently make someone feel good. Because people feel really good when they get things liked, when they get acknowledged. But this plays into the whole one-upping thing. Because it's like, people are used to expressing themselves in their own little box. With people saying nothing in response. Or little. Because I mean, you'll see a lot of comments. It's not like people respond with anything that substantial. And there's almost something, there's almost a negative connotation when you see people respond with something, with something long. 
You know, it's almost like it, usually if someone does comment, it's just kind of like, yeah, you go get it, you know, something like that. So it's interesting, though, that we've kind of created this world where people are used to basically having the mic. I hate to use that phrase, like having the mic, having the mic. Are you talking about my friend Mike? Uh, but no, it, it's like having the mic. And so people feel that way when they're on social media or, and people communicate that they're watching, that they're listening by clicking the like button. So there's not really an exchange going on. People aren't really exchanging information. It's not really a conversation. Even if people reply and they're like, oh, this reminds me of this. Let's talk about something, you know, more at length. It's not really a back and forth. It's your little stage, your little platform where you're holding the mic. And I think this increasing discomfort with like one-upping in real life to the degree that like people sometimes don't even want to hear somebody else's story. They don't even want to hear what somebody else has to say is this feeling of, hey, I'm holding the mic here. I just told my story and you just need to listen when that's not how conversations work. That's not how chemistry works. That's not how conversational chemistry works. You should say something to somebody that makes them think of something that inevitably relates to their own life or something they saw or thought about, something they came into contact with, with their senses, something they are aware of, which is knowledge. Awareness is knowledge. So they're going to say something to you based on that. And then that's going to make you think of something. And you're either going to really dive deep on one subject or you're going to, that's going to cause you to talk about all kinds of things. You know, it's, it's just, it's that sort of idea. But I think that as people's social skills have declined, I mean, we know that that is a, another one of these downsides of social media or and the, and the digital dominance of our age is that we can see where people's basic social skills have declined. And that's a realization for me, because I was hearing people say that, you know, for a few years, I've heard people talk about that, but I guess I didn't really experience it, because for one, I don't know very many people who are younger than me. Like, I don't know many people who are more than three or four years younger than me. But I have come into contact with some people who are in their 20s, and some of them are, have perfect social skills, and, I, and I've, I have met a couple teenagers even. It's very rare, but I have come into contact with people who are a little bit younger or my age, you know, I, people my age as well. And I have noticed like what I once perceived or I've realized what, what I once perceived as sort of a rudeness or coldness is actually probably a decline in social skills. You know, I realize that a lot of people don't even know how to say hello. They just kind of freeze up. Like even hello is too much. And this is something I've ranted about, but... I noticed this with my generation where most people I know will tell you they hate talking on the phone and they hate it because it terrifies them. It makes them extremely uncomfortable. They feel this pressure. Whereas like when I talk on the phone, it's just like turning the faucet on. And I have to remember to listen on that too. But you know, the people I talk to on the phone, nobody ever feels like I have, I have several friends who I talk to regularly on the phone, my dad too. And, uh, you know, when we talk on the phone, it's for hours and we just rant at each other and we do, it, there is a back and forth, but nobody ever seems to feel that anybody's trying to talk over each other. Nobody ever seems to feel that anybody's trying to one up each other. 
and yeah, there's like, I have a couple introverted friends and we talk on the phone once in a while and I, I do kind of dominate that. And I'm actually more introverted in reality than at least far more than I am on this show. Uh, but if I'm with a friend who's extremely introverted, I'm going to be the dominant one. You know, it's all relative. But, you know, in those conversations, like nobody ever seems to be like sometimes like I have a friend, you know, I'll be talking to Miles and I'm just like, let me finish this. Like, let me finish this point. And he'll do the same, like where we will scream over each other, but nobody's offended, you know, because, you know, we understand what's going on. You know, it's like nobody's insecure about this conversation because the important thing is the conversation. The important thing is the back and forth. Even if one person takes, grabs the mic ruthlessly for a minute or 10 minutes to talk about something important to them. Nobody's offended. Nobody's bothered. But I have noticed with certain people, and maybe it's that they're they're shy, maybe it's one thing or another, but a number of girls I've dated are just have been terrified of using the phone. And there are people who are my age who grew up using phones, but they're terrified of the phone. It's like they think it's a portal to hell. I'm not even kidding. They're terrified of talking on the phone. And, uh, and not just to me, this isn't just cause I mean, you could, you could be like, Oh, well, maybe they're just terrified to talk to you. But no, I, I've seen, I've seen people have anxiety attacks over having to call like a friend of theirs or a family member. It's not even just dealing with me. Um, and I, I think there's the people even younger are probably even more terrified of the phone because they've never even really used it. Like somebody who came of age at a time when phone calls were just not being not very common. I mean, I didn't get my first text message until the end of my junior year of high school, and I had just gotten a cell phone of my own. I had just gotten a cell phone, I think, like the second half of my junior year of high school. It was just a primitive little cell phone, and I got a text message. And it was such a novelty. I was like, this is a text message. People, I knew that that function was on the phone, but I was like, I didn't know that people used this, because up until that point, my friends and I would just call each other. Like, just to uh, make plans. Like if my friend was downtown, he would, he would be like, hey, we're down here. Come meet us. That's how we would make plans. Where are you? We would call each other just to communicate that. And it's so effective. Like I miss that. I miss making plans verbally because you just, especially like spur of the moment, you call somebody and you say, hey, I'm doing this. Do you want to go? And you say, oh, I can't. Instead, it's like, Something that would take five seconds to either say yes or no, I will meet up with you, is extended over like tons of messages trying to figure out all these details. But anyways, a tangent, because my point is just that people's social skills have deteriorated and they've become far more inward in their in the way that they express themselves. And, they're, and when they do express themselves, it's often not in real time. Like it's some, Even though I think that a lot of people just think their thoughts as they're typing, and there is a real-time aspect to, say, social media, where you're like thinking your thoughts as you type them, not necessarily rehearsing something, although people do that too. People draft things. People rehearse what they're going to say, and they type it out and that kind of thing. But you can tell a lot of people just think things essentially as they're typing them and it gets right out there but it's still not real time in the same way that a conversation is where you're on the spot Um, but people's social skills have deteriorated their basic human social skills like people you can't go into a bar 
you know, I mean, you can, I'm sure, but you can't go into like a bar with young people today and hear the same sorts of conversations that you would hear, you know, baby boomers having. And maybe that's, that's, that's true for, you would say that the same thing about baby boomers in the greatest generation too, or the silent generation, whatever one, you'd be like, yeah, they'd be having different conversations too. And this is something that people have probably always complained about. Oh, the, the youth are different. The youth don't do this as well as the older people, or they've changed in this way. But I don't think this is changing as much as it is deteriorating. I think basic social skills have deteriorated. People are used to expressing themselves in this way that they have their own little platform in the form of a digital box that contains their text or their image. And the idea of someone like snatching that mic away is extremely upsetting to them. And there's even a healthy way to compete in storytelling. I mean, some of the best stories, some of the best conversations are people exchanging stories competitively. So it's not even that one-upping is inherently bad. Yeah, if it's the lady that I worked with, people like that who just tell you some pointless detail about their lives in an effort to say they got a better deal or they did it, they did more of it. You know, if it's that, that doesn't really add anything. But Competitive storytelling is something else entirely where you're both just adding. You're adding fuel to the fire that is this conversation. You're both throwing that volleyball up. You know, you're hitting it back and forth. I mean, because I, 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 I do get the impression, like, some people think that a conversation today is just you throwing up the volleyball, spiking it, and getting a point, and nobody else does anything in response and then you wait a certain amount of time, and that person does the same back to you, and you don't do anything in response. So you're just scoring these points on each other. And that seems far more narcissistic to me than volleying back and forth. And I guess that's what I'm getting at, is because one of the, the criticisms of one-upping is that it's narcissistic. Like, oh, you always have to try to beat me at my own game. Like, you always have to try to have the best story. Oh, you're always trying to do better than everybody else. Oh, you're always trying to talk about yourself. You're always trying to relate things back to yourself and your own life. And, you know, that's another thing that's coincided with all this is this increasing accusation of narcissism, which nobody's ever said to me. So this isn't coming from a place. I've been called a one-upper once by a guy that I considered a friend at the time. But none of this comes from a place of me being accused of this. Maybe people think this about me. I don't know. I don't care. I honestly don't care. But I've noticed this trend in, in society, and at least in, in Western society. I don't know what's going on in other countries, um, where people seem really concerned that somebody is trying to outdo them, especially in, in terms of you know, on a conversational level. It seems to really cause people... And they look for it. Because, I mean, the thing is, when you, like, come across a term like one-upper, you start to notice one-uppers, even where they don't exist. So I think that's a part of it, too. Uh, But, oh, yeah, I was going to say, like, this also coincides with this increasing, like, diagnosis of narcissism in our society. And we saw that a lot with Donald Trumpsfeld, where every freaking person who's ever run for president is a narcissist. Not diagnosably, let me put it this way. I wouldn't say they're a narcissist. I would say the idea of running for president on its own is an extremely narcissistic gesture. The idea that I have what it takes 
to be the leader of an entire country, a massive, powerful country. That's a pretty narcissistic gesture that I'm the man for this job. But yet that's also a quality that leaders need to have. There is an inherent narcissism to leadership. Even if other people prop you up and tell you you should be the leader, even if you don't want to be a leader and other people choose that role for you, even accepting it is kind of a narcissistic gesture on your own part. It's like, well, yeah, maybe I am that guy. But you saw it a lot with Donald Trump's fell where people are like, these armchair psychologists are like, he's, a, he's obviously a narcissist, which I, I think he is. You know, if somebody's a narcissist, I would say he probably is. He's a president. He's Donald Trumpsfeld. But that has gone hand in hand with an increasing armchair diagnosis of everybody. Because that's one of the criticisms of social media. Or it's like it's made people more narcissistic. Well, it's also made people want to point out narcissism in other people, even where it doesn't exist. So that's the interesting thing about it. It's not just that social media has made people more narcissistic. It's also led to an increase in accusations of narcissism, of armchair diagnoses uh, of narcissism. And it seems like the whole one-upper thing is, has gone hand-in-hand hand with that. And it's not just social media, it's everything. It's us having phones and taking selfies you know, it's all of that. It's all of the things that we have access to that relate to ourselves. We've gained greater access to ourselves somehow, but in these superficial ways. And when we get preoccupied with that, it's very easy to become narcissistic. It's very easy to, you know, I think about, the, I'm not going to get into it. I was going to say, you know, how, you know, there was, there's a person who died last year and what has become the symbolic image of him was taken from a selfie and it's been turned into like street art and paintings and that kind of thing. And, you know, I don't want to get into, I don't want to get into any of the details of that just because I want to focus on the fact that a selfie has turned into this portrait that has become a symbol, a socio-political symbol. And that's fascinating to me. And that shows you that selfies aren't just trivial. You know, selfies can become something far larger than they originally were, which is just kind of like a, a lazy way of taking a picture of yourself. Uh, but uh, you can see where like all of these things have given us tools to focus on ourselves, but they also are tools to focus on other people, which is a lot of what we do. So while we have become more focused on ourselves in these superficial ways, you could say, we've also become more focused on other people in these superficial ways. And those two things have gone hand in hand. So while we ourselves may have become more narcissistic, or I think more appropriately, our narcissism has become more evident. I think that it's again, I don't think this is new. I don't think this stuff was developed suddenly, because we have the technology. I think we have an inherent narcissism. And it's just more obvious now because of the tools we have available to express it. But what's gone hand in hand with us becoming more obviously narcissistic is us recognizing that in other people and being quick to accuse others. And that's just like a psych 101 thing, like accusing other people of the very thing that you are and you are doing. But it is true. That is a very true thing that happens. And uh, 
the person who's saying like, oh, don't one up me. Don't one up me. Oh, don't try to relate to me with your own story because you're just one upping me. I have the mic. You're accusing the one upper of being narcissistic by taking hold of the story, by hijacking your story. But what you're actually communicating in doing that is far more narcissistic on your own part, which is that I have the mic. You should be listening to my story. You should be listening to my story. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I'm the dominant one here. You're actually one-upping them by calling them a one-upper because you're saying that you have the microphone and the stage and that they have to follow your rules. You know, that's essentially what you're saying to them, which to me is a very narcissistic idea. The idea that you're the one who gets to speak right now. And you get to decide how the conversation goes. Because a conversation, in my opinion, has no real rules. And that's what makes it sort of a dilemma to navigate. Because you're like, well, I want to relate with my own story, but I don't want to hijack their story. I want to add to it. I don't want to be the person who just says, oh, you got a truck with the... You know, uh, you got a truck with this size wheels? Well, I got a truck with bigger wheels. You know, it's like you don't want to be the person who that's the extent of what you're offering. But you do want to offer something and you do want to relate it to your own experience. And those things will bring you closer to people. But people aren't getting closer to each other right now. They aren't getting closer to each other on a personal level. And that's not just like a coronavirus locker downer thing. It's just... It's something that's been going on for years. So as as people have become kind of alienated from each other on a personal level, we accuse other people of being narcissistic. We accuse other people of trying to hijack our story. Meanwhile, we are being incredibly narcissistic and we are hijacking them with our story, you know, from the get go by being like, I'm controlling this plane. I'm controlling this train. Whatever it is. And, uh, you know, and sometimes you're going to say things that somebody doesn't care about. Sometimes you're going to say things that say things that isn't interesting. Sometimes you're going to say things that maybe are unnecessary. And I, and I think there are general rules with this stuff. Like if somebody is telling you about something tragic or difficult, you just, I think you should uh, lean toward listening and if, if it goes for advice, too, because there's a lot of people who don't like unsolicited advice. And, and I think another example of this is the, the mansplaining thing, which I hate to even say that word. I hate to even say that word. But, uh, you know, where when an idea it's kind of like in the same way that like when somebody has introduced you to the idea of one uppers, you start to think that every time somebody is offering their own story, they're trying to one up you or compete with you. And I think it's similar to the mansplaining thing. Yeah, while men do sometimes, uh, you know, kind of overpower women or try to tell women things they already know, and sometimes there is an element of misogyny to that. While it does happen, not every time a man tries to say something or describe something to a woman, not every example of that is mansplaining, but you can see where... It goes back to like the the cliche phrase, like you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's sort of like along those lines, where it's like when you've been introduced to the idea of mansplaining and that that's something men do. Sometimes I don't know how often, 
I don't think there's any way to know how often that happens. There's no possible way to know how common that is. It's an extremely subjective judgment. Mansplaining. It's extremely subjective. But, uh, you know, you know, with that, uh, I think when you're introduced to an idea like mansplaining, like when you, when you read an article about it, you suddenly start to see it everywhere. You start to think, oh, I think he's mansplaining to me right now. And is he? I don't know. I can't tell you. I'm not there. But you'll hear people turn around, and they're all too happy to talk about how a man mansplained to them. And I'm, I'm, I can't even use this word. I'm really, it's really painful just to say that word out loud. Because it's something everybody does. You know, it really is. It's something everybody does. Sometimes people try to tell you about something you already know how to do. And yeah, maybe there is a misogynic misogynistic element to it for I'm not going to take that away from anybody um, you know that that exists but I think once you know it exists you sometimes start looking for it you start noticing it where it doesn't exist and as people's social skills have declined you know I think it's easier to misinterpret people like you you've you're no longer in the moment of conversation and you're you're uncomfortable for one. You know, if you're uncomfortable, you can't really get into a conversation. So as people have become more uncomfortable with the idea of just having a good old-fashioned conversation, we start to analyze conversations in this different way because you analyze things when you're not in the moment. And when you're extremely uncomfortable talking to people, it's very difficult to be in the moment. So you're analyzing the conversation as it's happening, which is what shy people do. You know, shy people are worried about what they're saying. Not all shy people, but just people who are uncomfortable in conversations. They are thinking about what they are saying before, during, and after they're saying it, and you can't get into a conversation that way. And then they're thinking about what the other person is saying before, during, and after they're saying it. So there's this sort of like meta-analysis going on during the entire conversation that removes you from the conversation itself and leads you to make judgments of what that other person is trying to do when you can't, you know, well, sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's obvious that somebody is trying to do something. It also allows you to make all kinds of judgments that might not otherwise need to be made in that conversation. And I think of the one-upping thing along those lines. I don't know. A lot of this comes down to assuming someone's intent. I just assume someone's intent. And then I guess the other thing I want to talk about in this is that even just good old-fashioned one-upping can be a good conversation. Because I think all of this goes in hand, hand in hand, too. I'm talking about a lot of hands holding a lot of other hands here. A lot of hand in hand. A lot of hand in hand. <laughs> Sounds like a euphemism. Oh, you guys doing a little hand in hand? Uh, but uh, what was I going to say here? Sidetrack myself with all the hands in hand. Hands, hand in hand. Sidetracking myself. Uh, this all goes hand in hand with an increasing discomfort with regards to competition itself, you know, where it's like a fear of competition because the one upping thing is, oh, this person is trying to outdo me. And I understand it's not always a fun conversation if someone's trying to outdo you, but that can be a fun conversation. 
But you can see where competition itself is scary to people. Like people, there's this whole, you know, opposition to team sports, which are amazing because they're both one of the best ways to understand firsthand competition as well as collaboration. That's why I like team sports because it's, as a kid, if you play team sports, you're understanding how collaboration, cooperation, and competition work. Like people always talk about, I'm like, oh, it's too competitive to make little boys uh, put on football uniforms and uh, fight over a ball. It's like, yeah, but you're also teaching each team to cooperate. And the entire game is a game of cooperation. Like even though you have two teams competing against each other, those two teams are actually cooperating with each other. Because they're following, for the most part, the same exact rules. And even though one wants to beat the other, they're committed to playing the same game. It's not like these are just random teams of people who just go onto a field and they're like, do whatever you want to win. It's like, no, you have to follow the rules. You have to follow the protocol. And you have to do it mutually. Because it wouldn't be football if one team just decided, hey, we're not going to follow any of the rules of the game. We're just going to try to hurt them and just take the ball over there. No, you have to follow this system and these rules to do it, and you both have to cooperate within that system. You both have to follow the same rules. Uh, So it's funny that even, like, you're cooperating within the team. Like, on your own team, in practice, you compete with other players on your team for positions, for different things, to even just in drills. You're competing against your own team in that way, but you're also cooperating because you're one team trying to be extremely effective at using the system of football to win games. This is really a a stupid way of making football more complicated, although football is complicated. Um, But so it's like there's competition and cooperation going on, even on your own individual team. And then there's competition and cooperation going on when two teams play each other. So it's interesting in that way that it's you're never experiencing just straight up competition or straight up cooperation in team sports you're always playing a little bit of both and even just two teams agreeing to play the same game with the same rules is itself cooperation as well as competition but people have gotten you know competition phobic they have though people you know fewer kids are playing team sports from what I hear from what I hear at the old at the old coffee shop all the dads are telling me fewer kids are playing team sports but You can see where competition scares people, and there are fewer opportunities to physically compete. There is a a, a fear of competition, and that naturally translates to everything, where people are so insecure about that that they feel like simply a conversation is a competition, which it is, which it is. But it's not necessarily unhealthy to compete it's not unhealthy to share stories and try to one-up someone sometimes for fun. If, there's, if you can both play the game, like it's like an intense game of volleyball. You know, if you can both do it, you can do it. But if someone doesn't want to do that, you should pick up on that too. Like you don't want to be the person who's always just trying to win some non-existent 
conversational competition. Like you don't want to be that person, but you test the waters a little bit because sometimes that can be fun to have your own story, to have your own adventure to tell someone about. And I say this as someone who doesn't even have interesting stories. Very rarely. And the, the few interesting stories I have, I will tell you over and over again. I mean, I have a friend who's looking for jobs in, in Vietnam. He's going to do a teaching in, in Vietnam or you know Southeast Asia. And I think he's done it before. And he was telling me about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I visited Korea. You know, somebody I knew was teaching there. And I, I told him a little bit about that. And if he was insecure, he easily could have been like, this is my story. I have the mic and the stage. I'm talking about how I'm going to go teach in Vietnam. And you're trying to one-up me because you already knew somebody who taught in Asia. You already went to Asia. Oh, you're trying to outdo me because you got to Asia. You, you planted your flag in Asia before I did. You know, it's like somebody could actually respond that way. And we see people do respond that way. And that's why I'm talking about this. That's why I'm talking about this because it's so freaking insane. But fortunately, my friend is, you know, an interesting guy on his own. He's not insecure. He's not conversationally insecure. So we just ended up having a conversation about Asia and moved on to something else when that ran dry. But you can see where, like, me bringing up, I was relating to him. He brought up something just on the fly. He brought up something he was planning to do. He was going to go teach in Southeast Asia. And I told him, about my own experience with Southeast Asia. One of the few interesting stories I have. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he didn't take offense. He didn't say, like, well, I have the mic right now. You need to wait until I'm done talking about my plans for Southeast Asia before you talk about how you already planted your flags there. You know, he didn't do that because he's a normal person who knows how to talk. But you can see where even something as simple as that can rub someone the wrong way in today's world. And I think there is this fear of, there's this great insecurity. This great insecurity that people have. And, uh, but even then, it's like, I don't think that, you know, a competitive conversation is necessarily bad on its own. While there's a time and a place for it, like there was this time where, you know, this is going to be a great story right here, but there was a time like some years back where some friends and I went to a bar, I was with a couple of friends, we went to a bar, we ran into a couple who were friends of theirs, like I didn't even really know these people. And we all sat down and we had all just gotten to the bar, so we were all on like one or two drinks so we just had that initial buzz and we all just started talking and each person had a story like it, it, the conversation never there was no lull in the conversation. I still remember it because I've had very few conversations with, you know, five people that went like this where every single person at the table had every single person was like upping the ante each person was throwing a different story that was adding fuel to the fire and you could kind of feel this element of competition where the tone of it was kind of well yeah well uh, when I went to like someone there was like yeah well when I lived in New York and they, they didn't talk like that you know because people uh, let me just say people who live in the Pacific Northwest who have lived at New York really love to talk about it and God bless them because that is interesting 
You know, it would be very easy for me to be like, oh, so you, because you think you lived in the, the Big Apple, uh, you think because you lived in the land of Big Apples, you were you better than me? Because you lived in the most famous city in the world? You lived in the most famous city in the world? You think all your stories are better than me? And there are people who, from the Pacific Northwest who lived in New York for a year who will come back and try to like be like, well, in New York, it's better. Because that's a form of the... the that's a form of like the dead end that I was talking about. Like the woman I worked with who's like, yeah, well, I got a better deal on my car. Oh, my baby was heavier than your baby. Oh, oh you're going to bitch about uh, being pregnant with a nine pound baby? Well, my baby was ten and a half pounds. You know, like that lady who just dead ends conversations with her attempt to like beat people. Like there are people who are from other parts of the country or they've they, they lived in another part of the country where like their idea of a good conversation or their idea of what they want to communicate is, yeah, well, I lived in Boston, and the, the, the lobster's so much better there. The football team, the New England Patriots are so much better there. You know, those are dead-end conversations. Like, that's never a good com- conversation, and that is a one-upper. You know, that is, like, the, the ultimate, like, negative one-upper is the person. Like, I, like, my friend was bartending some years ago, and this guy was there from Boston, and he was, like, an ex- I think an ex-cop. So he was like he was like the ultimate stereotypical. I mean, he was even from like outside of Boston. It wasn't even like he was from Boston itself. But he had the accent and he was talking to me. We were just both sitting at the bar. And he just everything he said was that. Every single thing he said was like, yeah, well, we got the better lobster. Yeah, well, we got the better football team. You know, it was just all that. And I was just like, cool, you know, like I can't. It's not that I feel insecure or threatened. It's just that I can't possibly have a conversation like this because all I can all I can say in response, like the currency of that conversation is like, yeah, well, we got the better salmon. Our football team is good, too. Our uh, our forests are better. You know, like that just it's pointless. It's a dead end of a conversation for me. Like if he wanted to talk about how good the lobster is, that's a different conversation. Like, oh, man, we got such good lobster. Got to get my Boston accent down, which sounds like this. We got such good lobster in Boston. You know, if he, if he wanted to talk about how good it is and, like, elaborate and talk about how the lobsters live in a cave below the, the bay where they dumped all the tea. And that's why it's so good because the lobsters have been living off. They've been, the lobsters have been drinking the tea from the tea party for the last 20, 20 years. The tea party was 20 years ago. <laughs> for the last 220 years, they've been uh, drinking the tea from the tea party. and uh, That's why the lobsters are so good. Now, if he wanted to like talk, have a conversation about it, I wouldn't have felt threatened. Like If he was talking about how good the lobster is, and, he was, and that was just kind of like... It was an open conversation, but the extent of his conversation was just the lobster's better where I am. You know, it was that kind of thing. And so you can't have a conversation like that. But going back to this other bar thing, you know, a lot of these conversations do take place in bars. Uh, you know, where I was with this group of people where everybody was upping the ante and everybody knew everybody was upping the ante and everybody was meeting the occasion. And like, yeah, look, one person pulled the New York card about something that happened in New York when they lived there for six months. Someone pulled some other card. 
Someone talked about having a baby or something. You know what I mean? Like it was like everybody had something and it all made sense in the context of the conversation. And we were all like on that initial one or two beers. So the buzz was just like the, you were just ready to start talking. And it was very interesting. And like this group of people never met up again. Like I never hung out with this exact group of people again. Like, yeah, like I saw them, like a couple of them were my friends that couple who joined us are people that I saw around, but like, I never had that exact moment recreated. And it was incredible because it didn't go on very long. It was like a half hour to an hour or something of just everybody had something and nobody felt threatened and everybody like hit the, like the second that somebody was done telling their story, somebody else was ready to go. It was very interesting. And I, I it's, it's, it, what's interesting to me about it isn't even what was said because I don't even remember what anybody said. It's not like we were drunk. We were just buzzing, you know, and I don't even remember what anybody told. I don't, the stories themselves just came and went. But what was so interesting to me about it is I've had very few situations where everybody was on, everybody seemed to be competing, but it was to make the story, it was to make the conversation better and more interesting. And after like the couple left, like it was a short thing, like where the couple just came in for a beer or two and they left. And then my friends and I were sitting there and one of them mentioned it. They were like, that was that was crazy. Like everybody was just throwing something in. Everybody was just doing their part. And and there was a a competitive element to it. Like we reflected on that conversation because I think that's so rare, at least I feel like among my generation to have conversations like that. Because nobody felt insecure, nobody felt threatened. Everybody was just doing something with the conversation. And that's what you have to do. Nobody was worried about anybody one-upping anybody. And when the conversation died, when the people had to leave, they left. And it, it was worthwhile, even though it was forgettable. I don't remember a single story. I don't remember what story I told. Probably one of my three interesting stories. But, uh, you know, it, it was just something, you know, because that's been the exception in my adult experience and it seems to become even more exceptional to have conversations like that outside of maybe one or two cl- close close personal friends or like my dad you know I called my dad like a week and a half ago and we went off both of us just went off about different subjects and you know it's, it's just you can have that with family members like I was able to do that with my mom when she was alive uh, I'm able to do that with my closest friends for the most part but to have a group of people, especially more than three, because, yeah, like if you have two or three people together, I think there's a higher chance, especially if everybody respects each other and kind of knows where each other is coming from, you're more likely to be able to do that. But with each additional person you add, you you add, you increase the likelihood that there's going to be somebody who's insecure. There's going to be somebody who just throws a dud into the conversation, which often might be me. And uh, so it's like... Each person you add to a conversation means potentially just more, it's more likely to, somebody's going to be insecure, somebody's going to tell a boring story, you know, that sort of thing. So it is interesting how the more people you add, and I think that does kind of coincide with the digital world and the internet where audiences are much larger. Because it really is like when someone communicates something online, it is similar to I have a microphone in the stage and an audience and no audience is big enough for me. No amount of likes is big enough for me. 
You see that a lot. Or I've mentioned before on here. Like sometimes just knowing that one person is actually paying attention to what you're saying while you're saying it in the flesh is phenomenal. Sometimes that's all someone wants in life. Sometimes all someone wants in life is to know that there is one human being with their eyes open listening to you. Whether they say anything in response or not, that is phenomenal sometimes. Because there are so many people who go through life and don't feel acknowledged. And to know that one person is listening to them in that moment is huge. But people also get hungry for more. Like, I mean, to use the social media or comparison, because I think it is relevant. You think about somebody who, like there are people out there who post things online and they get no likes. And then one person likes it. And that to them is like one person listening to them while they're talking. But people get hungry for more. You know, there's people who get hundreds and, you know, check that kind of thing, care about that kind of thing. And I just, I think that's a bad system. You know, I think the whole like like button thing is a bad system because it just makes people hungry. One way or another, it makes people hungry. It's a weird, it makes things statistical. It makes things very statistical where people are counting. It's like they're counting the tickets they've sold to their show. And I just don't think that's how it should work. I think that was a bad turn that the internet took because it didn't used to have that at all. It was like if you wanted to acknowledge something, you said something. And there was something kind of beautiful about the fact that if you were expressing yourself online, either via a website, a homepage, or an early social media account, or a forum, or whatever it was, there's something kind of beautiful about the fact that you didn't know who was watching, you didn't know who cared. You only knew if somebody had something to say via comment. And I think that was a better system. I think it it made people less hungry, and it also forced people to be conversational. Because if you wanted to communicate with somebody in that realm that realm, you had to say something that was interesting enough or relevant enough for somebody to say something in response. Whereas now it's like the response that people are looking for is just like someone clicking a button saying, I acknowledge this. And they might not even care about what you're saying. It might be a girl who has a crush on you and she couldn't give a shit about the thing you're saying. She just wants to let you know that she likes you. And that's a weird form of that now. You know, you can tell when a girl doesn't like you anymore because she doesn't like your posts. Oh, my God, I noticed you stopped liking my posts, but it's true. You know, and uh, uh, so it's like, you know, you don't even you're not even guaranteed someone cares. But if someone has something to say, if they have a comment or an email, like you think about old home pages where you could go to someone's page and like, yeah, there was a statistical side of that where someone would be like, yeah, I have a counter. It counts all, all the traffic that goes to my web page. Well, that existed. You know, the only way to really communicate was to email that person, to click contact. You know, so there was substance to the way that we acknowledged each other. And, uh, and that's closer to how we acknowledge each other in the flesh. You know, even though we don't listen to each other, even when we're sitting in the same room and someone's talking to us, we're thinking more about ourselves or we're not we're tuning it out, you know, that kind of thing, even though that's real and that happens, it's, it's still like commenting 
typing an email, writing something to somebody is closer to what it's like to have a conversation. So it makes sense to me that as our, as the digital realm has sort of erased conversation or it's made it, it's, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's a raced conversation. It's just it's made communication less conversational. It makes more sense that conversation itself would kind of deteriorate. Where people don't really know what a conversation is and that a conversation is filled with warts. I mean, every conversation, it's warts and all. I mean, that's my approach to podcasting, which this show is a conversation with myself, but other podcasts are conversations between people. And what stood out about podcasts when they were newer is that a lot of people took a warts and all approach. And that's the interesting thing. Like I've mentioned this before, but if you look at the way that people criticize well-known podcasts, it's very interesting because what they're criticizing is natural conversation. Like when someone watches some famous show, like some well-known popular podcast every week you'll notice that a lot of the criticisms are just natural things that happen in a conversation. Like, oh, can you believe that he always says that phrase? Can you believe that he repeats himself? Oh my God, he's repeating himself again. Oh my God, he always says that one thing. Have you noticed how much he says you know? And those are normal things people do in conversations, but you're looking at them under a microscope and you're looking at it as if it's something other than what it is because it kind of is. It kind of is unnatural. Like a podcast is kind of a, an unnatural attempt at capturing a natural conversation. Like when I tried to record my friend once and it didn't work, but the second I told him I'd hit record, this friend who is otherwise extremely extroverted on the phone suddenly just shut down. Because it was like something unnatural was happening. Whereas if I had told him, or if I, if, I told, if I told him, oh, I'm not recording this, but I secretly was, we probably would have had an amazing conversation, but it would have been unethical to record him without his knowledge or consent. But the second he knew, he's somebody who's never done this before. So the second that he knew the record button was hit, he clammed up because even though the idea is to have a natural conversation, he suddenly knew it was no longer natural. He suddenly knew there was a performative aspect. He suddenly knew it was being documented. So it's interesting, like, the popularity of podcasts is that, oh, it's listening to two people have a conversation, warts and all. And there's a lot to it, especially with people who are comfortable, that is natural. The actual circumstances are unnatural. And then because of that, because these things have become popular, you now have all these listeners who are critical of things that are actually completely natural to the conversation. Like people missing jokes. Like I'll see that criticism on certain things where it's like, oh, the host totally didn't get that joke. And it's like, how many conversations have you had where somebody doesn't get a joke? How many people do you know who you like and you want to talk to, but they might not get all your jokes? You might care about them for another reason other than jokes, the exchange of jokes. You know, there's things like that where it's like that's a normal part of conversations is people not getting what you're saying, people not laughing at your jokes, people stammering, people stuttering, people telling you stories that you've already heard. 
verbal tics, you know, all those things are normal. And it's funny that people criticize those in podcasts because those are the thing that actually makes it what it is. That's the reason why podcasts became popular. And who knows how long this will last. You know, obviously, it's just another form of radio under a different name. But who knows how long this bubble right now will last. I mean, I've been doing this in obscurity for eight years. So that's meaningless to me. The podcast bubble is completely meaningless to me personally because I don't even really consider this a podcast. I was never comfortable with the term podcast because it was a new term when I started this show. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, though, that the thing that people seem to be most critical of when they listen to popular podcasts are the things that are actually the most natural about it. And it makes sense that people, too, are uncomfortable with natural conversations themselves in the flesh. People seem to be uncomfortable with the fact that people try to relate through telling their own stories. People even compete. People throw the volleyball up and say, hey, can you hit this? And sometimes people can't. And sometimes they do and they go back and forth. And a conversation is full of potential misunderstandings. It's full of Tons of potential for the positive as well. I mean, it's how we come to know and like people. You know, and if, because I mean, like, I've talked about it before where it's like a lot of the friends I have, like, I might, I, I usually have at least one core interest in common with them, but very little of our actual relationship and chemistry involves that interest. Sometimes it does, but often it doesn't. So it's interesting to me that. So much of it is just the ability to communicate with somebody in an effective way. So much of friendship is that. So much of a good relationship is that. And that is knowing that there's always a potential for misunderstanding, but knowing there's always the potential for understanding. And you achieve both of those things by back and forth. You know, you don't hold somebody hostage. And say, no, you're listening to me right now. Oh, you're trying to one-up me? Trying to one-up me? You know, you don't have a conversation by worrying about that or thinking about that. And if somebody just gives you nothing but dead ends, well, you know that about them. And you might not like them. Or you might like them for another reason. And you just know that you can't have certain conversations. Because, like, that's part of the, the fun of talking to people is that you realize what you can and can't talk about. Because there are very few people in this world that you can talk to truly anything, that you can talk to about truly anything. Yeah, there's people who won't judge you for anything, but what I mean is, like, there are very few people who you can have an actual interactive, sustainable conversation with about any subject. Because chances are you don't have enough information to talk about everything they want to talk about. They don't have uh, enough information to talk about what you want to talk about. So you end up talking about certain things with certain people. And so, you know, having conversations with people is just improv. It's being comfortable enough to improvise. And it's a skill that you can... Develop because I admit like I talk about how people have gotten uncomfortable talking on phones and I admit there was a period where it's probably around the late 2000s where text messages had started to take over fewer and fewer people were making phone calls more and more was being done via email 
And I had a job where I had to make cold calls. It wasn't a telemarketing job where I did that all day. But it was a job where like for a big chunk of my day for just part of the job, it wasn't like an ongoing thing I had to do indefinitely. But for a specific project, I had to make cold calls to random facilities and event centers and places to try to arrange to basically ask them to donate space for these trainings that I was trying to set up, which is hard to do because you're asking a place to give their space. You know, you're asking a place to provide space for free, which most places don't want to do. Like, do you have a meeting room? You know, asking them for things like that that we can use for free. And I hated doing it. I mean, who wants to do that? Who wants to call a business or some sort of institution and ask them if they have a meeting room or some sort of room that we can use for free for a training? So, I mean, the premise sucked. Like, it's not like I was even selling something or buying something. It was like I was asking them to donate time and space. And so that sucked. But I, I was terrified of just making the call itself. Like I had, you know, like my life depended on it. And while, you know, my job needed me to find spaces, training spaces, it wasn't like I was going to be fired if I couldn't find them because they could hear me making the calls. They, they would know that I was making the effort. And some sort of, emer- in, a, in an emergency, we would have been able to come up with something if we couldn't find these spaces. But I was just so terrified of making the call, of calling human beings and asking for something on behalf of an organization, on behalf of, you know, it was actually a government agency that I was working for. So I had no very little skin in the game aside from the fact that it wasn't a very enjoyable thing to do, to ask for a favor from people who don't owe you anything. And since then, I've had to make cold calls, and I don't feel that way. Because like, I was getting to the point, it wasn't just like at a job having to make cold calls and dreading it. I remember like even just making appointments became dreadful. Like having to call the doctor and make appointments became this anxiety-provoking, dreadful experience for me. And you could tell that the world was changing, but then I caught myself and I, I started to resist that. And I, I found myself having more text message and in digital conversations with people for a little while than I was phone calls. And I, I mean, that's just the, the nature of things now. You're going to communicate with more people that way because of their comfort level. Uh, but... I was like, oh, I've got to still call people. I've got to get past this. I can't let myself fall into this. I can't let myself get sucked up in this new wave where we're uncomfortable having conversations, even conversations we don't want to have, cold calls. Yeah, you don't want to be stuck in telemarketer hell where your entire life revolves around that. But you also don't want to dread it when you have to do it. So that's an interesting thing is just that it's a, it's something that it's a skill that you can lose if you don't do it enough. And it's a skill that you can strengthen if you do it regularly. But the trouble is finding people who can who are still willing to do it. It's hard to find people who are still willing to have conversations. And the last year hasn't done any uh hasn't aided that at all. It's taken away, and we'll we'll see what happens. You know, we will see what happens where it's like we've already had many years now. I mean, if I noticed myself kind of losing some of my confidence socially, conversationally, in the late 2000s, you know, we're talking about like 12, 13 years now 
of everybody doing that and many people not doing anything to strengthen those skills. And then in the last year, the normal routine things they would be doing, they would keep those skills just barely going, have been wiped away. And then adding to that is all of this increasing like meta-analysis of everything everybody's saying and this interpretation of what everybody's doing and this judgment and this criticism and this assuming intent. That has become amplified in the last year. I mean, it's become amplified over the, the last few years, but in the last year we've seen where that has become amplified. So it's going to be increasingly more difficult to have a natural conversation. But I think it's built into us to have natural conversations. You know, I, I don't think that, you know, we're still early enough on in this process that it's not like we're going to evolve out of that ability. Like that can still be activated. Like you don't use your muscles your entire life and like your muscles still function in a way that if you use them and you eat the right thing, they will grow bigger. You will grow stronger. So it's like, it's not like if you don't use your muscles or if, or if you built up your muscles big and then you don't work out for 10 years and you lose your muscles, it's like you can build those muscles back up again. And I think conversation, I think social skills are the same way where I think that, you know, while your social skills can deteriorate, I think you can build them back up again, but I'm not eager to, even though like I, I'm talking about conversation and how we need to sharpen our social skills and have confidence in what we're saying and not be so insecure that we feel threatened by everything everybody else is saying and not to sit there and analyze, meta-analyze it as they're saying it and not to metalize, metal, meta-analyze what we're saying while we're saying it, even though I'm saying all this stuff. I'm also not eager to get back into conversations in the near future. Like I'm not eager to talk to people that I haven't talked to in a while because I think there's going to be some growing pain. I'm not eager to get back out into the world. Like I want, you know, people are like, oh, I can't wait to get back out and socialize and go to parties and hug people. And it's like, there are going to be a lot of growing pains with that because some of those skills have already deteriorated. People's insecurity has already grown before Locker Downer, before Coronavi. And then now we have that, which is basically, you know, complete, people have been completely immersed in digital communication where they hold the mic and have a captive audience. And then you have all this hostility and insecurity, political, social tension, so we're going to have to contend with that, too, in our conversations. And uh, I don't know, you almost get the feeling that even being able to maintain a conversation at all is going to get you called a one-upper. Because I think a lot of the things that bother people are just normal functions of a conversation. They're the things that we say to fill space, to try to keep things going. Because a conversation is a warts and all experience. The warts and all experience. It is, though. No, that's true. You know, where it's like there are going to be warts to a conversation. You're not living in a movie. You're not living in a TV show. And you can see where TV shows even try to capture that poorly. 
Like, I've never really watched these shows like The Orifice, Parts, and Rex. You know, I've never watched these sitcoms. I'm not going to criticize them. But it seems like what they try to capitalize on is this human awkwardness. Like, that became, I mean, it's probably always been a trend, but, you know, it's probably always been a part of sitcoms. But I've noticed in particular sitcoms in the last 15, 20 years. But more recent ones, especially more recently popular ones like those, the ones that people are always quoting, you know, it seems like a lot of those try to, you know, exploit human awkwardness. They try to make it a point to be like, look at how awkward these characters are. They're almost like the way you are, but, you know, exaggerated because they are caricatures in a certain way. Uh, But it never really captures the actual human awkwardness because actual human awkwardness isn't very entertaining. You know, it actually isn't very entertaining, but it's something you just kind of have to get through. And so while these shows kind of make it funny, like, oh, look at how awkward he is. Ha ha. You know, it's like when someone is like that in real life, like when someone is like the thing that that show is trying to recreate, it's not ha ha funny. It's just sort of like, well, this is awkward. It's just a stupid thing people say. This is awkward, you know. It's just, it's actually awkward. And conversation on one hand, and you know, this is where like art imitates life and life imitates art because it's like these TV shows that try to capture natural human awkwardness and maybe exaggerate it a little bit. They're scripted and real conversations don't sound like that. But they are trying to mimic something that happens in real human communication. They are trying to capture a real human awkwardness, except they just have to do it more expressively so that you know what they're trying to do. So that normal people can watch it and go, oh, because he made his eyes really wide and made a funny face when he said it, and there was a laugh track, I know that it's supposed to be funny, and it's not just a a crappy show. You know, you have to be given cues. The average, not because they're stupid, but just because some most people's brains function a certain way, when they're watching something, they often have to be told what it is they're watching. Like, they're, they're, they often have to be told that this is meant to be funny. Oh, the character makes his eyes really big when he says it, so I know that there's something exaggerated and therefore funny about it. But it's trying to recreate something that does go on because that's what we respond to. It's why popular stand-up comedy usually plays on things that are relatable. Back to that word. They're usually things that we can personalize and understand. And even though we're not in a one-on-one conversation with a stand-up comedian, when a stand-up comedian talks about something and we go, oh, yeah. He's talking about something that I've been kind of subconsciously aware of that goes on, but I've never had the words for it. And it reminds me of how my aunt said, blah, blah, blah. And even though you can't say that back to the comedian, you're thinking that. And if you were in a conversation with one of your peers, you would say it. You know, if, you're, if one of your peers said the same exact thing that that stand-up comedian is saying that makes you go, oh, that's so relatable because of this. You're going to say the thing that is relatable, that you relate to. You're going to talk about how, yeah, oh, you're totally right. My aunt, my aunt does that at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And you're not like hijacking the conversation by doing that. 
But if you were to scream that at the stand-up comedian on the stage, you would be hijacking it. You know, you'd be annoying. The, the comedian would treat you like a heckler. Or like something's wrong with you. Because they have the microphone and they're on the stage. But we've reached a point where it seems like in normal conversation, a lot of people have started to feel like they are a comedian on stage with a microphone. Therefore, it's, it's way more narcissistic to me to think that you, in conversation with your peers, are on a stage with a mic. That's way more narcissistic to me than somebody trying to add in their own bit or relate to it or tell their own story that your story made them think of. So I'd keep that in mind. Anytime you feel yourself threatened by something that somebody else is saying in an otherwise normal conversation, remember that you're not on stage. You're not holding a mic. Yes, sometimes people do just need to listen to you because there is an ebb and a flow. There is context to why you're telling somebody something. And sometimes you don't want advice. Sometimes you don't want somebody else's story. But remember that when you're talking to your peers... You're not on stage, you're not holding anything, and neither are they, and a conversation is a back and forth. A conversation can be a competition. A good conversation can be competitive. A good conversation is both competitive and cooperative, and, you know, it is a game too. And when you enter into one, you know that you know that both of those things are happening or, or can happen. It's not even that both of those things are happening because you don't want every conversation to be competitive. You don't want everybody to feel like they have to get their thing in. Got to get my bit in. You don't want a conversation to feel like everybody has to do that. But it's like you should go into any social interaction knowing that this is potentially a competition, this is potentially a cooperation, there's a good chance it's going to be both, because if nothing else, we're competing for time. Even if you're not competing over my story is better than yours, or oh, you think that's a good story? Well, here's my story. You know, even if it's not competitive in that explicit way, it's competitive in the sense that you can't talk over each other. It's competitive in the sense that you have to wait for them to finish talking so that you can say something, but you shouldn't just be doing that while you're, you shouldn't just be waiting for somebody to finish because that's not a good conversation. You should be enjoying what they're saying and then when you have the opportunity, say what you want to say and that's inherently competitive. I'm saying inherently a lot in this episode. Uh, It's inherently competitive Because you both have a limited resource, which is empty space to talk in. You know, it's like you're both, you can't talk over each other. And part of conversations is dealing with the fact that you inevitably will. And not assuming that somebody is doing it because they're trying to outdo you. Not trying to, not assuming that, oh, she's talking over me because she doesn't like men. Or he's talking over me because he thinks that he needs to mansplain. All those things might happen. Not assuming that. Not always assuming that. Not always assuming somebody is trying to dominate the other. But it's like you do have to recognize that there is a limited resource which is silence that you can both destroy. 
And a conversation is a destruction of silence. It is a destruction of that Black Sabbath empty space. And it is a certain crime. But a conversation is a beautiful crime. It is a beautiful crime filled with competition, cooperation. It is one of the most collaborative things we do. And I value conversation now more than I do most other creative endeavors because some of the most free-form, amazing, mind-blowing, life-changing conversation to me comes from conversation. And I'm not going to get that experience. I'm not going to have my mind blown. I'm not going to have my life affirmed from a conversation where somebody is so insecure that they think everything you say has some other intent or it's an attempt to snuff you out or dominate you. That's not how that's going to work. You have to give people the benefit of the doubt and recognize that this could go anywhere. And the best conversations always do. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take my hand and walk this land with me.